This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Good to be here. And Andrew Miller. Hello. We also have Josh Taylor. Hello. And from our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. It's good to be back. I appreciate the help of all those who filled in, including our very capable Jeremiah Jacques, serving as host for several weeks there. Well, after surviving an impressive series of scandals, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has finally resigned to leave office when his party can figure out a replacement. To learn about this, we will go to Richard. Yes, this really uh, dramatically came on this week where what seemed at first like a relatively minor scandal, I guess, became the final straw that broke the camel's back. And uh, you had just about all the senior members of British Britain's Conservative Party turn on Prime Minister Boris Johnson and basically hound him out of office. Uh, he had this scandal about how uh, you know, he he appointed an individual who had some inappropriate behaviour. Uh, it came out that Boris Johnson knew that he had uh, engaged in this inappropriate behaviour in the past and appointed him anyway. And so this is kind of that's where the scandal came from. You had, uh, a, I think, well, in the end, well over 50 people resigned from his government. The previous record for mass resignations was six in 24 hours that was set back in the 1930s. So it was quite a dramatic uh, push. He, it was a, a big fight. It kind of, the, the resignations kicked off Tuesday evening. Uh, all throughout Wednesday, there was just kind of this, will he, won't he, uh, is he going to resign? Is he not? The resignations piled up all day. It kind of got to, I think, by the next morning, Thursday morning, it was very clear he was not going to be able to find people to fill all the vacancies. He was not going to be able to effectively run a government. So Thursday morning, Downing Street announced that he would be resigning. And then uh, just after or just right around lunchtime on Thursday, he came out and announced that it was over. Uh, that he would be stepping down as leader of the Conservative Party and stepping down as prime minister once a replacement for him had been found. So what happens now? Britain's government is in uh, quite a lot of turmoil, and there are a lot of people looking at this saying this could go just about any direction. That's right. I mean, first of all, how long is Boris Johnson going to stick around? That's one of the big questions. It could be anywhere from until next week or until November. Uh, he would prefer, I think, quite naturally, a slower transfer process where uh, the, conservative, the the British Parliament goes on recess over the summer. Then you have party conferences in the autumn in September. Party conferences would be kind of a convenient time for the Conservative Party to pick a new leader. So he'd like to stick around and then have the new leader take over uh, sometime around October, November time. There's a lot of people within his party, however, saying, no, we don't want you sticking around as a caretaker prime minister. All these people resigned, not because of a policy disagreement, because but because they believe that you personally are not fit to run the country. Uh, and so we need to have you go you know, now and, and have a caretaker prime minister come in. I imagine what will happen is that Boris Johnson, I think it's most probable that he will stick around as a caretaker prime minister 
but that the selection process will for a new leader will be a lot quicker than uh, than his kind of preferred uh, more leisurely pace and then when it comes the big question is well who's the next prime minister and i think we're in a really remarkable situation where there's about a list of half a dozen or no not half a dozen a dozen at least potential candidates and it is not remotely clear really which of those candidates are the are the favorite and to be honest i think for every single almost every single one of those people on those on that list i think most people in the uk will not have heard of them unless they're kind of really into politics unless you're the kind of person who is able to name right now who the education secretary is uh or the department head of the department of work and pensions or the prisons minister unless you can kind of get into that kind of detail you probably will not have heard of most of the people on the list it really is a remarkable situation there are kind of no big beasts no people with proven track records and it's very hard to look at that list i mean though there are a few people who are say marginally ahead of others but it's very hard to look at that list and be sure that this person is going to lead off or to say well these are the two or three front runners so mr johnson is gone and there's a big vacuum in terms of who will replace him and i don't think anyone has really any idea of who that next prime minister is going to be it's difficult to uh, look at what is happening in britain right now and the turmoil that the government is in and not see a link with a similar situation unfolding in israel where uh, the government dissolved they've uh uh, scheduled new elections this coming November. Uh, and so it was an unexpected change. I mean, we've been talking about just the, the turmoil in these governments for quite some time, but basically things turn on a dime. And, uh, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of people leave from the, the parliament and suddenly there is no government. Uh, and we could we could be in a very different place in Britain and in Israel uh, in just a few months, in a very short amount of time, at the same time that you have this phenomenal political crisis unfolding within the United States, and these these three countries with a with a president that many people consider illegitimate, uh, and making a lot of decisions that are clearly against American interests, the link between these three countries, Britain, America, and Israel, and the political chaos that you see in all three, the upheaval. Uh, there, it, you see upheaval in a lot of nations, but the fact that it's happening simultaneously in these three countries bears scrutiny because of their link in biblical prophecy. That's right, and this is what I focused on on the Trumpet Daily Show yesterday, because it is, like you say, it is one of the the kind of the standout here that uh, these three countries have very important things in common that uh, you look as Herbert W. Armstrong talked about in, in his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. All three of these countries are descendants from Israel. Not just that, but these are um, you know, some of the ones singled out for special, unique blessings among the tribes of Israel. You know, the Bible talks about, obviously, there's Israel in the Middle East is descended from Israel, but uh, they're just one tribe. They're the tribe of Judah, and the Bible has a lot of very specific prophecies talking about multiple tribes. And Hosea chapter 4, Five is very clear where it talks about all of these tribes falling together, falling at the same time. And to see all of these going through the same trends together is a remarkable fulfillment of that. And 
you know, God is working with these nations in very similar ways. He's warning these nations in similar ways. Uh, he has some very specific purposes and things that he wants to use these nations for. And so we see just this, uh, this kind of rhyming or repeated uh, political pattern across all of them. And, you know, you've got a leadership vacuum in the United States. I think it's very clear that, that Joe Biden is not the one in charge. I mean, you've got, uh, Barack Obama that's really running things from the background, but, uh, so kind of an unprecedented leadership situation in America. And then, as you said, things have just changed so quickly uh, in both Israel and in the in the United Kingdom to to bring us into kind of to bring really accentuate these kind of longer term trends of political chaos, but bring them to kind of a, kind of a much more urgent uh, crisis situation. Mr. Palmer wrote a trumpet brief earlier this week on this subject. Britain, what happened to our leaders? Uh, and just contrasting Britain's glorious history of leadership with uh, the uh, the tumult that's taking place in that country today. I would go check that out. We'll link to that in the show notes for the program. We will certainly keep our eyes on how this unfolds within uh, the UK. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Palmer. A dramatic story just in from Japan, where former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has just been assassinated. For this story, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Japan is reeling right now after the longest serving prime minister in its history, Shinzo Abe, was assassinated. This happened on Friday morning in Nara, Japan. Uh, Mr. Abe was delivering a speech there. It was a campaign speech for an upcoming parliamentary election. Abe retired, actually, as prime minister of Japan back in 2020 due to health concerns, but he still remained a pillar of Japanese politics since then, and, and he was regularly seen making appearances and giving speeches. So he was delivering one of these campaign speeches in Nara when he was shot twice, apparently in the chest and neck at close range. And Abe was rushed to the hospital where he received more than 100 units of blood transfusions over the course of several hours. But his wounds were just too massive. And uh, about five and a half hours after the shooting, he was pronounced dead. So this is just a, a profound shock to the world and especially to the people of Japan. It was the first killing of a sitting or former Japanese leader since 1936, when a coup attempt killed two former premiers. And this is a country that uh, has really prided itself on order, and it is a place where guns are rigidly banned. Also, the fact that Abe was the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history makes this even more rattling. He had been just you know, a fixture of the political scene since the 1980s. And he held that highest office from 2006 to 2007, and then again from 2012 to his retirement in 2020. But he was 67 years old at the time of his assassination, and he leaves behind a nation that's really just in shock and mourning. It's a little hard to tell when uh, we're fresh off of uh, an event like this, but what do you see the um, his assassination doing to this country? What does this mean for Japan going forward? Yeah, well, Shinzo Abe was known for three main political pillars. 
Abenomics was uh, his economic policy that really revived Japan's economy after the big collapse of its asset bubble back in the 90s. The second pillar was improving U.S.-Japan relations. Under his tenure, many people came to see Japan as the single most important ally that America has. And then the most important feature of his leadership was pushing Japan to take up a more, you know, a more robust military posture. That was something that Abe was on record as calling his most cherished wish. And he worked for years to move Japan away from pacifism and toward full military normalization. Uh, Japan, of course, had pacifism enshrined into its constitution by the United States back in the 1940s. But Abe thought that that had long outlived its purpose. So he worked actively to make Japan a full-fledged military power. And, and he really did accomplish a great deal toward that end. From 2014 to 2015, he scored a big victory by passing legislation that reinterpreted that pacifist clause in, uh, in the Constitution. It reinterpreted the military's role and gave the military the ability to fight with allies overseas. And then within just a year or two of that, the Japanese military was deploying troops abroad for the first time since World War II. So that was a, a major change. Abe also steadily ramped up spending on the military. So those were key victories um, in his nationalist desire to you know, fully normalize Japan's military. But they did fall short of his ultimate aim to officially amend the Constitution. So with his assassination... I think it'll be really interesting to see how this changes Japan. We don't yet know everything about the assassin's motives, but we do know that he was a former military man. He served for three years in uh, in Japan's Navy back in the 2000s. Um, so we, we don't yet know what exactly prompted him to, to murder Shinzo Abe, but it may well be that Abe could come to be seen as a martyr to the cause of constitutional revision, and that the current prime minister, Fumio Kishida, may be able to accomplish even more than Abe did and, and make that most cherished dream a reality. So looked at from the standpoint of Bible prophecy, uh, this is what we're expecting from Japan, and an event like this, dramatic as it is, could accelerate that. Very much so, yes. Uh, this this is quite significant in terms of Bible prophecy, because the Bible says one of the main players in World War III will be a group of Asian nations called the Kings of the East in uh, Revelation 16, 12. And Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, the editor-in-chief of the Plain Truth News magazine, he said that based on his understanding of Bible prophecy, he believed Japan would be part of that Kings of the East block. And if you look at Ezekiel 38, it does list some names there uh, that are referring to Japan, indicating that Japan will be part of that, that massive Asian alliance. So when we keep those scriptures in mind, and you know the, the Bible passages about just how utterly destructive that final world war will be, then it shows us why it's so significant today to see Japan pushing so hard to remilitarize. And if Abe comes to be seen as a martyr for that cause, it could start to happen much more quickly. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Why the Trumpet Watches Japan's March Toward Militarism is the name of the article that we'll link to in the show notes for uh, today's program. We appreciate that. In a move this week, China and Russia look to be further aiming to upset the global balance of the current American-led economic system. To learn about this, we'll turn to Josh Taylor. 
Absolutely. In this week, um, it was announced by the Russian foreign ministry, uh, minister, foreign minister, pardon me, uh, Sergei Lavrov, that uh, Saudi Arabia intends to join or is going to start discussions to join the BRICS group. That's the socio geopolitical group that's made up right now of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And that was announced on July 2nd. And then shortly after that announcement, China came out and formally invited not only Saudi Arabia, but quite a few other countries to join in discussions to expand the BRICS group into the BRICS plus group. So um, in, in Newsweek, the president of the Saudi elite group in Riyadh said China's invitation to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to join the BRICS confirms that the kingdom has a major role in building the new world. So that was, uh, again, from Newsweek. This is the uh, backdrop for Joe Biden's upcoming visit to the Middle East uh, starting next week. Um, With Saudi Arabia right now, with this announcement, what they could be doing is just simply trying to pressure Joe Biden and apply some geopolitical pressure on him to uh, give Saudi Arabia more concessions, to be more amenable to Saudi Arabia, and to and to start actually having some dialogue with Saudi Arabia because Joe Biden has said some has a pretty f- infamous streak with Saudi Arabia in terms of the things he said about the Saudi Arabian uh, crown prince and his stance toward the kingdom. So this could be just some political pressure in that regards. But if this isn't um, just a geopolitical move, if this is Saudi Arabia really trying to join the BRICS group, this could be a very cataclysmic shift for America economically. How so? So right now, uh, the United States economy is faltering pretty heavily. We got, we're got we potentially in the middle of a recession. The United States is uh, famously, our gas prices are hitting historic highs. And part of the reason Joe Biden is going to Saudi Arabia is to ask them to start pumping more oil so that to help bring those prices down. Saudi Arabia is the biggest oil producing country right now in the world. So it's really important that Joe Biden get them to, to help with this and for him politically. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, is a part of OPEC, which is an oil group made up of those Gulf states. And Russia right now is loving the, the, these high oil prices. So if, uh, if Saudi Arabia does join BRICS, it would basically mean the end of what's called the petrodollar. Basically, most oil producing com- uh, countries in the world do a lot of their trading in U.S. dollars. So when you buy or sell oil, again, that's usually done with the U.S. dollars. So if Saudi Arabia were to join Russia, China, and uh, which are these, this big energy block, it would they would basically, I know China has been trying to move away from U.S. dollars and establish other currencies for this kind of trading. So it would just absolutely wreck the U.S.'s power to economically sanction other nations it would economically destroy the U.S. just in terms of how much it can pressure other nations. And it would be just disastrous for, again, the oil prices and gas prices in the United States and just push the U.S. further into economic ruin. We've been seeing this move by uh, China in particular, but uh, other nations as well to try to undermine the uh, supremacy of the U.S. dollar in the in the world economic system and the just the the means of grabbing Saudi Arabia, drawing them into the orbit of these uh, these Asian giants, uh, just because of the importance of oil in the um, in the global economy today. This just is a a huge weapon that would uh, increase the effectiveness of these these efforts. 
Yes. Um, Mr. Gerald Fleury has been talking about this trend for a long time, and he specifically pointed to two prophecies uh, um, that you can find in several books of the Bible. The first one is what we call the Mart of Nations, or what he's called the Mart of Nations. It's in Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 27. And it talks about this big group of conglomerate of nations that will come together to uh, economically shut the United States out of world trade. And then um, he also expand, uh, expands on Deuteronomy 28, verse 52, which reads, And he shall besiege you in all your gates, and until your high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trusted, throughout all your land. And he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout the land, which the, eternal, uh, which the Lord your God has given you. And Mr. Fleury explains that that is an economic besiegement because those gates are uh, sea gates. They're trade gates meant to, uh, to help well, to facilitate that world trade that the United States and Britain has dominated for just for the last two centuries, basically. And these nations include specifically headed up by China and Russia. They're going to join together with the other with other power blocks, other trade blocks to shut the United States out of world trade. So where does uh, Saudi Arabia factor in biblical prophecy when you're talking about these efforts to, uh, to reshape the global economy? Uh, it fits in because one of the big, the, that other trade blocks that I just mentioned is Europe. And uh, specifically, a German-led Europe united with a uh, Middle East bloc. We call it the Psalm 83 Alliance in Bible prophecy. Enlisted there along with na uh, the nations listed in that psalm is uh, Saudi Arabia, the biblical name for Saudi Arabia. And that's why we expect them to start to, to be a part of this kind of economic besiegement of the United States. Okay, well, where would you send people for more information about this, Josh? For more information, the first place I would send the readers would be to uh, Mr. Gerald Fleury's book, Isaiah's End Time Vision, which does explain this uh, these prophecies in detail. Also, uh, there's a, good, a great article on the website by Jeremiah Jacques uh, entitled Blocking the U.S. Out of World Trade that would explains these very well as well. Thank you very much for that, Josh. We have two stories today showing the deliberate undermining of American interests by the Joe Biden administration. In the second half, we'll talk about a stunning move in the energy sector. Here we'll talk about immigration and the Biden administration's treatment of deported illegals. To learn about this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the border crisis gets worse by the day. According to the latest statistics, 3.2 million illegal immigrants have been apprehended at the southern border since Joe Biden took the oath of office. Uh, and as far as we know, there have been at least 800,000 more who have been detected but not captured. And then, of course, you don't know how many cross the border without being detected. Uh, so some shocking statistics, those blow past the uh, the previous um, border crisis record set in 1986, uh, moving us by a considerable margin into the, the worst border crisis in American history. And uh, it's easy to forget about if you live in certain parts of the country, but there are other parts of the country where uh, this is definitely a daily reminder between the, the fentanyl deaths, the, uh, the high speed, the high speed car chases of police trying to apprehend some of these immigrants, uh, ranchers having uh, property sabotaged. The Epic Times actually published um, 
a, a pretty shocking interview with a, a sheriff from Goliad, Texas. His name's Roy Boyd. He is a sheriff of a town about 200 miles from the Texas-Mexican border, uh, and he was going on about just a lot of the law enforcement problems he's uh, struggling with in Goliad due to this illegal immigration, telling the Epoch Times that there's no end to it. It's a movement of individuals from third world countries all over the place into our country. And the further you get into it, the more you realize that it's all done by design and it's at the design of the federal government. We're in a transformation of America from a free republic to something more like a Marxist state. And so uh, some shocking comments there and the, the Biden administration, uh, whether they've heard that interview or not, definitely uh, hasn't taken any correction from it. In fact, uh, they uh, recently um, rescinded a longstanding U.S. policy that says that no uh, illegal alien deported from the United States can apply for residency until 10 years are up. That used to be a policy that's like, okay, if you came here illegally, you got caught, you got deported, they're like, don't even try to come back legally for 10 years. And it was supposed to be like a penalty. Like, okay, well, if I want a chance at coming to America legally, I better not come illegally because if they catch me, I have to wait 10 years before I can even start the process, which takes some time anyway. Uh, now they've rescinded that. So you can come as many times as you want illegally, uh, get deported as many times as you want, uh, and still apply for citizenship at some point in the future, uh, which is going to have the effect of really encouraging even more illegals. We already have more than 200,000 a month being uh, being apprehended at the border, and now this policy change will encourage even more, uh, which brings you back to uh, Sheriff Boyd's point that it's by design. The Epoch Times actually aired uh, one other comment, uh, just as shocking, if not more so, than Sheriff Boyd's from Trevor Loudon, who's uh, probably one of the world's leading experts on communism. I've learned much of what I know about communism from reading his stuff. And uh, he uh, he told the Epoch Times he's first he emphasized that the United States is uh, the communist movements, the global communist movements main enemy uh, before making this statement. He says, if you can't bring it down through nuclear weapons, you bring it down through illegal immigration, which is maybe just as effective in the long run. This is an orchestrated communist assault on America to destroy America's borders, to create confusion in America and to overwhelm the political system. And then uh, and then after that, he commented that, like, this illegal immigration is like, says, well, once you get an additional 15 to 25 million Democratic voters, you basically uh, ensure Democratic Party control of the United States in uh, perpetuity. So some powerful statements that are really saying that, uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe some of America's communist enemies can't nuke it and destroy it that way because our Star Wars systems will shoot those nukes down by the time they hit the stratosphere. But if you can uh, get millions of illegal immigrants to come in, especially with help from someone on the inside of the U.S. government, uh, you can transform the U.S. electorate uh, to the point where the American people, the new American people, <laughs> um, the uh, the existing ones and all the, all the Central American Marxists, 
can just keep electing communist officials and do basically the same thing as if the Soviet Union would have been able to invade in the 1980s. Well, the the point that uh, this is not incompetence really is um, evident all the time in the decisions that this administration is making, that these decisions it's making are deliberately intended to undermine America's interests and uh, undercut the strength of this country, encouraging this kind of uh, incursion by foreigners into the United States. Not only is this at its face uh, very harmful to the country, it also fulfills biblical prophecy. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that whole this is not incompetence, this is treason angle in the second half of the show. Uh, but for right now, like you, you said, uh, the article we can put in the show notes is actually titled Where America's Race Riots Are Leading. Uh, and that's from the November-December 2014 uh, edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, and it's by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. Uh, it talks about a, a prophecy in Deuteronomy 28, which is the, the blessings and cursings chapter that shows the blessings that comes on a nation for obedience to God's law and the cursings that come onto a nation for disobedience. Uh, and in verse 52 of that chapter, Deuteronomy 28, it says, and God shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fenced walls come down wherein you trust throughout all the land. And he shall give you all your gates throughout the land which the Lord your God has given you. Now, um, that verse, it's, I mean, it's talking about high and fenced walls coming down where even the, even the language, if you've followed the political uh, debates in America of late, uh, brings to brings to mind the, the border wall on that southern border that has certainly come down. It's not working very well uh, and um, is allowing illegal immigrants to pour into the nation. But, uh, but this is what Mr. Flurry says in that article. He says, but notice the first part of verse 52, America's high and fenced walls are to come down. Aren't we seeing that take place right now? This is talking about a virtually open border where foreigners flood into the land. Illegal immigrants are streaming over the Mexican border in droves. And that's clearly the way some of our leaders want it. Do you realize that the immigration problem befalling America right now is actually prophesied here in Deuteronomy? And so um, that's definitely a, a prophecy in Deuteronomy that's been being fulfilled really uh, to a greater or lesser extent since the 1980s, uh, but especially in the past 18 months. I mean, ever since uh, Joe Biden took office January 20th, uh, 2021, uh, the, the immigration numbers have just been going up to where, as I mentioned at the beginning of my statement, uh, has really blown past all records. Is worse than it was under George Bush? Is it worse than it was under Ronald Reagan? Uh, is worse than it was under Dwight D. Eisenhower or, or any other president that struggled with a, a immigration crisis to something that's uh, truly historically unprecedented? Where America's race riots are leading, that is the article that uh, explains that prophecy that Andrew was just talking about. We appreciate you very much for bringing that to us. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, Russia's war in Ukraine could be reaching a big turning point. Protests in the Netherlands over plans to shut down a third of the farming industry. The Biden administration exporting oil from America's emergency oil reserves. And... Israel inviting a German company to establish a cybersecurity hub in Israel. We'll be right back.
You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. We'll go now to the Ukraine war. Despite a lot of opposition from the West, Russian President Vladimir Putin is showing himself determined to continue his offensive. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, there was an assessment released by British intelligence on Tuesday, and it said that Russian forces have now taken control of some key parts of eastern Ukraine in the last few days, thanks largely to the Russians learning to better coordinate different groupings of forces. So this uh, this coordination is happening especially with Russia's central grouping and the southern grouping. These, these are two major arms of the military, and they're now working in tandem far more intricately than they were at uh, earlier phases of the war. And this close coordination allowed Russia to overwhelm Ukrainian forces in the city of Lysychansk this week. That was one of Ukraine's last strongholds in the Luhansk region. But this past week, the Russians pushed Ukrainian forces out of it, and they took it. And that means that Russia now has essentially full control of the entire Luhansk region. And Russia also has occupied now nearly all of Donetsk, the other uh, eastern region that it claims. And there is an expectation that this change in the Russian forces approach could be an indication of a brand new and far more effective and very concerning new phase in, in Russia's barbaric war. George Friedman of Geopolitical Futures wrote about this on Tuesday, and he said, The battle now to be fought by Russia is simpler. The move toward Odessa will have the orderliness of a successful battle. Senior command is more likely to understand the condition of the battle and give orders as needed. So, you know, the Russians were faltering pretty badly in the early weeks of the war, but it looks like they've learned from those mistakes and and it could mean a big turning point for Russia. Tell us about the... uh, the economic laws that uh, Putin passed this week that uh, also signal uh, renewed determination to uh, fight. Yeah, this was this was on Tuesday that Russian President Vladimir Putin introduced a new set of laws that will let his government force Russian businesses to focus on building equipment for the war effort. So once these laws pass, which will probably happen just in the next few days, It'll basically give Putin the authority to tell Russian businesses to discontinue whatever their normal operations are and to instead work on supplying the military with weaponry, ammunition, provisions of all kinds, and uh, anything else it needs to destroy Ukraine. And then these laws also allow the government to force Russian employees to work overtime and to forgo time off. So it may be no more weekends or vacation time of any kind for uh, for Russian workers. And this kind of legal move effectively places Russia on a war economy footing. And I think it does show that Putin is just looking ahead and he's preparing for this war to go on for uh, quite a long time. So there was also news this week of... Uh... Russia making a, a similar kind of uh, economic attack on Kazakhstan. Tell us about that. Yeah, really interesting story there. The The leader of Kazakhstan made a phone call early this week to the president of the European Council, and he apparently went out of his way to distance himself from Russia. This man's name is Kasim Jomart Tokayev, and he told the European Council that he wants to make Kazakhstan kind of a buffer between East and West, and he promised to increase shipments of oil and gas from Kazakhstan to Europe as well, just to help the Europeans during this time when they're really trying to wean themselves off of Russian energy. So that was 
you know, great news for the Europeans and a very welcome development. But Vladimir Putin, of course, was not happy about this. And on Wednesday, one of his courts ordered the main oil pipeline that Kazakhstan uses. It's a, it's a pipeline that Russia owns part of, and Putin ordered it to shut down due to environmental concerns. We all know how deeply and, and sincerely concerned Putin is about being green and <laughs> as environmentally friendly as possible. Um, you know, of course, that was just a ruse. This is a clear case of one of the former Soviet nations just trying to break with Russia and even work against Russian interests. And so Putin stepped in and he weaponized Russia's energy as he has so many times before. He's using Russian control of this pipeline to remind Kazakhstan that it's not actually a sovereign country in Russia's view. It's part of the Russian sphere and it's not free to go behind Putin's back with any sort of foreign pol with any sort of uh, foreign policy. So this, this really is kind of part of the same story that's underway in Ukraine. This is Putin using his power to bully and control these nations that were part of the USSR in an effort to just rebuild the old Soviet empire and to solidify Putin's control of it. So stepping back, looking at all, all that has happened this week uh, with Russia's determination to prosecute this war to a successful conclusion, Bible prophecy says we need to, uh, to to keep our eyes very closely on the leadership within Russia and what it's doing in the world. There are a lot of people who have insisted that uh, Vladimir Putin is on his last legs. These really suggest otherwise. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has been sounding the alarm about Vladimir Putin's dangerous direction for almost 20 years now, uh, long before many people were concerned about Putin's direction. And that is because of Bible prophecy and, and prophecy's warnings about an alliance of some Asian nations that will be formed in the modern day. We spoke a little bit about that in the first half, but Mr. Fleury has pointed to Ezekiel 38 verse 2 to show that this whole Asian alliance will be led by one Russian individual. It calls this man the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And Mr. Flurry has identified Vladimir Putin as that individual who will lead not just Russia, but a whole group of Asian countries, likely including Japan, as we discussed in the first half, along with it. And uh, in his 2017 booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flurry goes through the details of that passage, and he connects it to several other scriptures showing just how destructive the force that Putin will lead will be. So this shows us, I think, why it's so important for us to just carefully watch Putin as he continues the war on Ukraine and his attack on Kazakhstan and just all other elements of his tyrannical leadership. And I think it shows us why we should expect Putin to survive all of this turmoil and to even emerge from it stronger somehow. Well, the uh, the booklet that Gerald Flurry has written on this subject, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, is available for free on our website. We'll link to it in the show notes. You can find it in our literature library as well. Thank you very much, Jeremiah. A remarkable situation is unfolding in the Netherlands as the leader's leftist utopianist thinking is running smack into the brick wall of reality. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, the Dutch government has some pretty radical targets to bring down the emissions of nitrogen oxide and ammonia they're concerned about. They say that these two contribute to global warming. And to bring this down, 
they've come up with one of the most suicidal uh, government policies, I think, that we've seen in recent times. They want to shut down Dutch farms. Astoundingly, the, the Little Netherlands is a food exporting powerhouse, uh, but they want to close down or, or eliminate about a third of the Dutch agricultural industry. So that means essentially shutting down one third of Dutch farms. And I think it's been about by about the end of the decade they want to do this. Understandably, Dutch farmers are not very happy about that. And all this week, they have make it, been making that unhappiness pretty clear. They've been blocking food distribution centers. They've been uh, driving all of their tractors down motorways and protesting this way. Uh, they've been uh, they've had uh, you know, pro well they've been facing off against the police. Uh, the government has responded very strongly, just as we're used to. You know, if you're a climate change protester, you can glue yourself to a motorway or. Uh, this is going on in the UK this week, vandalize priceless artworks in art museums, and the police will treat you with an incredibly light touch. But for these Dutch farmers, police in some cases have even responded by firing live ammunition. So uh, just a, an absolutely shocking response. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, the, the, in a protest that really is making itself felt across the Netherlands as supermarkets run out of food and a protest that is making itself heard all around the world. We were talking with uh, Andrew about just the uh, the the fact that the Biden administration's uh, policies are not just incompetence; that that there is a certain kind of malice behind them. Uh, it's hard to explain uh, something so, as you said, suicidal as what the uh, the Dutch government is doing without having some kind of uh, a question about what are the motives of these people. Right. I Okay, maybe if you shut down a factory, maybe people will go without and buy less stuff. But if you shut down farms in your countries, I mean, what's going to happen? People aren't going to eat, not eat. They still need food. They're just going to have to buy their food from some other country. So all you're doing is causing your country harm. You're making your country dependent on other countries for imports. You're putting yourself in the position where you could be besieged and have your people starved into submission in, time, in some time, kind of time of crisis. And with supply chains breaking down, we've seen how critical it is not to be reliant on other countries like that. Uh, so you're harming yourself with no benefit to the country. And I, th I just think it's really interesting that right now, this is kind of the next frontier in the climate change movement food and attacking the agricultural industry we're used to them attacking the fuel industry and that's an absolutely massive target you cannot run a modern economy without fossil fuels and so many of these different environmental regulations may sometimes appear good well-intentioned but their effects have nothing to do with helping the environment they do not help the environment in many cases they but they hurt the modern nations of, of biblical Israel, Britain, America, the Middle East, but then also several nations in Western Europe, like the Netherlands. And it's not just the Netherlands. This is all across the world. The European Union is trying to export this to other countries, even, even like Australia, uh, and have these kind of climate change rules. You've got uh, kind of climate change zealots like Bill Gates and other people responsible for this movement, buying up farmland across the United States. And now a big part of this global agenda is moving into food production, uh, trying to dramatically change the Western diet. 
there's uh, you see it at least in the uk you see it in in, in all the supermarkets big aisles of meat free meat uh, or plant-based meat cropping up everywhere uh but again, how do you understand a country come, people coming around and shutting down uh, their own their own food productions? All of this is about blotting out the nation of Is- nations of Israel, attack on these modern nations of Israel as these nations decline, and using climate change as an excuse. And this is something that Trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry uh, gets into in uh, his article from 2017: what the Paris climate change agreement was all about, and. He says in that that article, efforts to reverse climate change may look like they spring from good intentions, but there is an evil spirit behind it. It is all tainted by deceit, intimidation, bullying, and autocratic tendencies. And that was on full display in the Netherlands this week. This is exactly the way, Mr. Plurry continues, the great evil spirit thinks. He wants control and will use any means to get it. He is very active in the world today, and the climate change controversy is evidence of that fact. That's the kind of it's the whole it's the same spiritual agenda that's in our free book, America Under Attack, that is behind this kind of movement and using climate change now as an attack on the food security of the West. Well, we will link to that uh, article by Gerald Flurry, what the Paris climate change agreement uh, was really about uh, in the show notes. And thank you very much for that, Mr. Palmer, a related story unfolding in the U.S. with gas prices at unprecedented highs, the Biden administration says it's doing all it can to bring those prices down. But in reality, it continues to take steps that have precisely the opposite effect. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. A global shortage of petroleum has driven gas prices to historic highs, primarily because the Biden administration refuses to increase American production and secondarily because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Actually, I think I the last time I filled up, I think I spent like $50 on half a tank of gas, which is something I've I've never done uh, before. And, but rather than, like I said, increase domestic oil production, the Biden administration is dealing this by releasing uh, one million barrels of oil a day from our strategic emergency petroleum reserve. That's supposed to be something that in case there's something like a siege or an embargo or a war that we can rely on in an emergency we're releasing one million barrels of that a day, which is made our emergency reserves dwindle to uh, a lower level than they've been since 1986. Uh, and some of what we're using that uh, that released oil for is truly shocking, though. Like I said, one, uh, one million barrels is a day a lot, but at least five million barrels of that oil actually has not been used by the United States to lower oil prices, but has been sent to Europe or China to help them reduce their oil prices. The, I guess the, the Europe angle, maybe you can understand uh, a little bit as we are trying to help Europe out uh, and wean them off reliance on Russian oil and gas. <laughs> the, uh, the China angle is really truly shocking. I mean, China's uh, exporting uh, a lot of oil from Russia, and yet we're still giving them our emergency reserves uh, to lower their gas prices, which uh, which keeps gas prices high here, uh, and we don't have <laughs> we don't have nearly enough oil reserves as we'd like to. So combining uh, combining that fact that you've sent this five million barrels of oil from our emergency reserves to Russia and China, 
at a time when the Biden administration is uh, refusing to uh, cut some of that red tape that's stopping American oil and gas uh, companies from increasing their production. It really does get you back to that same point that that Sheriff Boyd and Trevor Loudon made about the immigration crisis, that this is this is something that's being done with intent by the U.S. federal government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really does point to uh, Gerald Flurry's new book, as as uh, Mr. Palmer was just talking about, uh, America under attack, and the fact that there is a uh, an, a deliberate effort to uh, take America down. You see it in these policies, right? Uh, particularly chapter eight of that new booklet. The title of that chapter is actually "This Is Not Incompetence." Uh, and uh, the thrust of it talks more about the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan and how that was disastrous uh, and not in an incompetent way, but in a, a treasonous way. You see the same thing here with uh, the illegal immigration crisis and with the energy crisis, that it's, it's self-sabotage, uh, a, a deliberate self-sabotage. And that uh, that chapter eight of that booklet really does... Um, draw attention to some uh, some powerful scriptures in the the Bible, 2 Kings 14, uh, verses 26 through 28, primarily that talks about an end-time Jeroboam uh, saving Israel, saving the end-time nations of Israel from being blotted out from under heaven. Uh, and just that phrase that he has to save them from being blotted out means that there is actually a power that's trying to blot those nations out. And so it's, it's a deliberate effort to blot those names of Israel, not just the, uh, not just the result of a president who's, uh, who's senile or, or uneducated, uh, but the, uh, the policies of a presidential administration that is uh, deliberately trying to drive up the cost of living while bringing in immigrants from the third world in order to erase um, and to erase the, uh, the the blessings that America's enjoyed for the past 300 years. Well, Mr. Stephen Fleury has been uh, promoting that book quite a lot on uh, the Trumpet Daily Show. Uh, we will do it here as well. Read America Under Attack, and uh, we'll link to that in the show notes for the program. And Pay particular attention to that chapter eight. This is not incompetence. Thank you very much, Andrew. We have one final story, an initiative in Israel that could increase the nation's vulnerability to cyber attacks, specifically to Germany. For this, we'll go back to Josh Taylor. So in a pretty big move uh, earlier at the end of June, sorry, we had the German pharmaceutical company Bayer to announce the plans to establish a security uh, hub in, sorry, cybersecurity hub in Israel. And it's planning to integrate this hub into the Bayer's uh, global cyber unit. And it will be one of their largest units of this kind throughout the world. And this also comes on the heels of another announcement where uh, those same executives met with uh, top Tel Aviv officials for uh, Tel Aviv University. And they also signed an agreement to uh, a cooperation agreement to promote groundbreaking cybersecurity research at the university. So this was a huge week in terms of technology for Israel in uh, in partnering with this German company. Uh, in To quote some of the, the directors and the executives that were there, uh, Yael Moore, uh, who is going to be running the cybersecurity hub, said, 
it is an it is exciting to create something uh, that act, that activities of which will have an impact in the world beyond Israel's borders. Along with our focus on the cyber unit, we will engage in locating Israeli innovation in cybersecurity. So what this does is going to do is it's going to help integrate uh, Israeli cybersecurity and further innovations in that sector into this German company. And that's fairly very significant because this uh, company has some very dark roots. It was created before World War I as a chemical and dye company. But uh, in the lead up to World War II, it was integrated into the IG Farben company. And that company was responsible for infamously creating the Zyklon B gas that was used in the uh, Auschwitz and other German ex extermination camp gas chambers. And it's projected about, or it's roughly estimated that about 1.1 million Jews were killed in these gas chambers. So this company has a pretty dark history. And after World War II, when, when IG Farben was broken up uh, back into its constituent companies, the one of the uh, members of the IG Farben board, who was, again, on the board during the Nazi era, he was allowed to, re, uh, to reform and reestablish the Bayer Company in 1951. And he was not charged with any Nazi war crimes, though, uh, on a, basically a technicality, because he, in the company's memorandum, it was there's no written evidence of him being put on the board except for by vocal assent but he was it is on but he he was on that board so he wasn't charged along with the other board members in the nuremberg trials so israel is uh quite a sharp country uh and they're um, very careful about uh, uh these types of things in many ways uh, what would you say to uh, the uh, the contention that they can handle themselves, that Germany uh, really isn't to be uh, feared, that even with the uh, the kind of roots that you're describing with this company, uh, it's very different today. Bayer can be trusted. Uh, why is this something that you feel like uh, people need to be more concerned about? Well, Israel is definitely... Sharp, uh, definitely, as you said, a sharp country. Right now, its tech, technology sector is second only to Silicon Valley. Uh, many have called that uh, Israel's tech sector the startup nation because of all the innovation that's happening there. But what makes this particularly concerning is that Germany has a very robust, very, very well-developed cybersecurity and cyber hacking and cyber warfare unit that it is uh, that it's developed over the years. And it's kind of done that fairly quietly. We've reported on the Trump before in some of those major developments. But what this does by allowing, bringing in this company to help cooperate and see those innovations and be a part of it, they're just opening themselves up to any kind of attack. They're giving them a back door. And the reason why we are concerned about that on the trumpet is because in Psalm 83, we see an alliance that is specifically designed to go after, to attack Israel. And along those nations listed is Asher, which is another, the biblical name for Assyria or Germany. So Bible prophecy says that Germany is going to come in and is going to be, is going to attack and backstab Israel. And this just makes that much, much more easier for them to do that. Specifically, uh, Mr. Gerald Fleury has said, has called uh, the, the West's reliance on technology our Achilles heel. And he cites uh, a prophecy in Ezekiel 7 that reads, They have blown the trumpet even to make all ready, but none goes to battle. 
And he explains that the reason why none goes to battle is because the commu- our communications are that are, that we're so heavily reliant on the ta- technology just gets cut off at the knees. And he's specifically referring to is to America and Britain, but in Bible prophecy, Israel also is part of that that group of nations. All right. Well, we do have uh, an article by Gerald Flurry that we'll post in the show notes uh, that uh, Josh referred to there. America's Achilles heel and Germany. You can check that out. And uh, we thank you very much for that, Josh. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Josh Taylor, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Aldous Huxley, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons of history. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world